There it is. I'm Charles Holmes from The Ringer Music Show. And I'm Cole Kushner from Dissect. And Charles and I are teaming up to create Last Song Standing, a new show where we determine an artist's single best song by debating our way through their entire catalog. And for our first season, we're covering Kendrick Lamar. We're talking Good Kid to Pimple Butterfly, Damn, Mr. Morale, the mixtapes, the Lucy's, and the features. Listen to Last Song Standing on the Dissect podcast feed only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This is Black on the Air. This is like one more Black on the Air. I told you this is a this is going to be a fun summer. I promise you that. And I am delivering that every single freaking week to wow. you guys. And tonight, or tonight, or today, whatever you listen to it, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's another fun one. Uh, this uh, gentleman is one of the funniest people just in the world today. He's so funny. It's so human, the stuff he talks about. And I know so many of you are fans and I'm sure you've seen his many specials and everything, but he has a new show out uh, that's at the Mark Tape Forum here in Los Angeles, The Old Man in the Pool. And it's so good. And I'm so happy to have him on my podcast. Mike Berbigley, welcome to Black on the Air. My friend, how you doing? Thanks, Larry. I'm honored to be here. I, I, I saw you at the show, the, at my show the other night and I was, yeah. I was thrilled. I was so honored. I think uh, you're royalty, you're comedy royalty. No, no, hardly. Um, but, uh, it's so fun to see you, you know, to see you here on the West Coast in a theater like the Taper, which is one of the greatest Great theater for that. That space is so great, you know. And just doing your stuff, man. It was awesome. Did are you having fun uh so far? I like it. Yeah. I mean, I have to say like the doing uh, the show's all about life, death, mortality and like Yeah. It goes there, you know. I talk about having cancer when I was younger and my sleep disorder and all these kind of things. And it has a ton of jokes in it, but I have to say right. like I think people right now uh they want to laugh. I'm getting a lot of people saying like, that's the most I've laughed in three years, two years, whatever it is. And it's like, you, you believe it because man, we have been through it. Yeah, we really have. And what I've always liked about your, your work. Well, yeah, this, first of all, congrats for this show, because you're right. There's so many interesting, uh, just your, the way you talk about mortality and your own mortality and, just uh, even talking about your father. How old was your father when he died? No, no, my dad. My dad's still alive. He, he's oh, had no, your, he's your had, grandfather. He, my, oh, my grandfather died at fifty six. Yeah, right. And was it a heart attack? Heart, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And it's and I and I never met him. I never met my father. My father's father. I never met and worked in the subway tunnels in in, in Brooklyn. Wow, wow. Yeah. But uh, you're always so human in how you bring these things up, and it's so disarming because you're basically doing comedy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, but all of your stuff is like that. The audience isn't sure what where are you going to take us, even though they're they feel safe in your hands. Like, I think the audience always feels safe in your hands. They trust you for the most part. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel that as you're doing it, that you're like, you guys trust me. I don't know if you should trust me, but don't worry. I won't disappoint you, but I might trick you a little bit. I know I'm speaking kind of esoterically, but you know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think like, 
I was lucky at a certain point in my career, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, because Ira Glass gave me a shot on This American Life, which is right. I'd, li- I'd listened to for years. You know, I'd listened to it, you know, since the 90s. And so that's where I'd heard David Sedaris and sure. David so Rakoff, Sarah Vowell, all these people yeah. who are great humorists and like, and I always thought, man, if I could just tell stories on mm-hmm. there, then I think people could get that I'm trying to do something that has some dramatic arcs in it, you right. know? Right. And and then I th- so I think that helped a lot. Like I think I think framing is often really important. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I think that framing was really helpful. And now that I've done a few specials, I think people know when they come to a Mike Birbiglia show, what, you know, they're in for and like, <laughs> it's not for everybody. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> like, What's the difference between doing something like this in the theater and doing your style of comedy in a comedy club? Well, it's funny because I, I work out a lot of the jokes at the Comedy Cellar in New York. Right. Which is a great space. Great space. Oh, yeah. Phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I love to do that because I think, you know, I mean, you've dealt with this so much with all the, all the, you know, TV you've written over the years, in addition to doing just short form jokes, is that like jokes are the building blocks of stories, right. which are the building blocks of longer form storytelling. Yes. Yes. Right. And right. so, like, when I go to the comedy cellar, like, I'll do a joke. I'll go, like, um, you know, I, you know, 70 Americans each year die from contact with the lawnmower, which is a eulogy that writes itself, you know, like Frank loved mulch and now Frank is mulch, you know, and it's like so silly, but in the context of like, okay, if that gets a laugh at the comedy seller, let me try to put that in this show Hmm. and see if it can work in a litany of ways that we can die, ways that we might die accidentally. And, and so I think like ultimately like, where I think some theater goes wrong and even some film goes wrong in television sometimes is that they forget to be funny. <laughs> I agree with you. And, and to be funny with the idea itself, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so funny. Like you see things sometimes and you go like, yeah, like you see a comedian do like a quote unquote serious right, project right, right. and you're just like, yeah, you still gotta be funny. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so you always start, um, you know, that's an interesting thing for you because your, your style feels like one long story, you know, but when you deconstruct it, they're built with these different anecdotes that are kind of threaded together. Yeah. Is that yeah. fair? Now the anecdotes itself, I want to talk about that. So what's the genesis of your anecdotes? Is it a, a joke observation about something that's going on in your life or is it the something that's going on itself that you feel needs some, could be towed humorously. So this show, this show, it's always sort of different, but it always, I feel like starts from the notebook. Mm-hmm. It always starts from like, what's your, obs- what's your obsession? What's the thing you're writing yeah. down? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I get obsessed with jokes, you know, like I see that's surprising to me. That's really surprising. I would have guessed the opposite. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get obsessed with jokes because I love, I mean, I was, I was raised on like, you know, uh, Stephen Wright, sure. one liner jokes, one of the best, one of yeah, the best. one of the greats. Yeah. And then it was like, I don't know, it was sort of after after Stephen Wright that I was digging into like, you know, 
Cosby and Pryor and mm-hmm. people who were doing more long form stuff. And, right. and so I don't know, like I, <laughs> I was, I posted a TikTok the other day, which is just, was me on my podcast doing like a joke that'll never end up in a show. But I was <laughs> saying to Mulaney Mil- where I go, uh, my body is a temple, like a fat temple that smokes. Right. And, and it's like, it doesn't quite fit with the tone of my show. And so it doesn't make it in. Right. But like, I, I love, I love how jokes turn. Me too. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I love how you're, you're going somewhere and then mm-hmm. you're going over here. Exactly. And, and, and I love how that stories do that too. Exactly. You think you're watching a story about this and then you're watching a story about this and you go, Oh my God. Yeah. Like this is a it, I want people to leave the theater and always just go like, I just did not see that come. <laughs> yes. Um, I made up a phrase for writing that I thought is what you want to be working towards. They're the hardest thing to find, but when you get it, it's great. I call it the inevitable non sequitur is what I call it. Mm. And in the moment it feels random, but in retrospect, it could only have happened that way. You oh, know? that's wonderful. So it's like you go, oh, and then you look back, go, of course, you know. <laughs> the inevitable non sequitur. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the best comedy has that feeling to it. It's like such a surprise. But when you really look back, you go, of course he did that, you know. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because it's like the stuff that appeals to me the most is like movies by like, like James L. Brooks, like oh, yeah. where, like broadcast news where it's kind of not unlike what you're describing, which is that, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you see the flashbacks to the child, Albert Brooks's childhood yes. and, you know, Holly Hunter's childhood. And, and then you see like Albert Brooks being like this, like neurotic kid who's getting beat up in the schoolyard. And so then, and, it, and it's funny on its own. Like it's a funny scene where he goes, you're only, he says to the bully, I think he goes like, you're only going to make $27,000 a year. <laughs> like, and the bully walks away and goes, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the, what you're saying is like the inevitable non sequitur of that. If I put it in your language is yeah. like, you realize that, He's the same person. Like, it's funny in that. Yeah. But then later you realize exactly he's the same guy getting bullied by the corporate heads. Yeah, exactly right. You know, that movie is uh, it's such a gem that you bring that up. And James L. Brooks so good. But Albert Brooks, um, like there are jokes always at the center of everything he does. It's it's the joke idea. Like I always say, you know, stand up are jokes, you know, sketches are just a longer form of a joke. Yes. You know, absolutely. and then sitcoms and movie are the longest form of a joke, whatever that yes. joke premise is. Like, um, uh, if you look at real life, one of my, uh, a great yeah. Albert Brooks movie, but defending your life too. Oh my God. Like, yes. like the joke about what if the afterlife was just a bureaucracy, you know, yes. and you're, yes. you treated like you're on the witness stand. I mean, that's the joke, but the way that it plays out is just so interesting and hilarious. You know, all of these things are so interrelated, yeah. which is why I'm, I, I always think it's funny when people go like, Mike Birbiglia is not really a stand-up. He's more of a storyteller. I'm like, it's the same thing, stupid. <laughs> exactly. You know. um, let's talk about your, your beginnings. Like, when did you know that this was a thing to do for real? You know, like, as opposed to, look, well, were you funny growing up? Was it that type of thing? Did you try to perform? I think I was, I was funny, uh, 
I thought I was very funny. I think that the the, the more popular kids at school uh, did not find me funny. I, I always <laughs> say that like the class clown was always, in school growing up was always the guy who pulled his dick out in gym class and yeah. whacked you with it, you know, you know, in the shower or whatever. And you're like, that's not funny as much as it is sort of like impressive right. physically. He's I don't the, know. He's the class asshole. And yeah, yeah. At, at that age, assholes are just funny. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I mean, what's funny is like I the stuff I talk about in my show mm-hmm. now, which is like existential questions having to do with, right? you know, is there an afterlife? Is there what are we you know, kind of why are we here? What are we doing? What are we living for mm-hmm. at all? It's like I feel like I was thinking about that when I was 15, 16 years old. Yeah. And then and I didn't have an outlet for it at all. Like, if anything, mm-hmm. like you tell you say that to another 15 year old, they're like, what are you talking about? And, uh, or at least in my experience. Right. And then I saw Stephen Wright live when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, like, I couldn't believe it. I just thought like people, people think not only the stuff he does is like so existential and abstract, yeah, but it's also so just silly at the same time. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of like a revelation that you even could do that. It was like, it really was like seeing a magic trick. Where, where you just go, oh, I didn't know you could even do that. Yeah. I love the joke forum. I always said the best jokes are like truth concentrate, you know. Yeah. That's just funny. Yes. And um, I remember I taught this class once. It was at Clark Atlanta where I, it was just kind of a showbiz masterclass type of thing where I was trying yeah. to teach them things they wouldn't learn normally in school. Like, how do you manage a career if you want one? <laughs> like, yeah. what are the stuff? How do you take a meeting? Things like that. But one of the things I did with the kids was how do you write jokes? And this was yeah. a revelation to me, Mike. These, and they're, these kids were not alone in thinking this. They didn't know that jokes were actually written. They just thought that comedians were just funny, you know, yeah. that, and they missed the part that there's a thought process behind it. So what I did was I chose five different comedians with different style. One was Stephen Wright. Another mm-hmm. was Chris Rock, Seinfeld, uh, late night joke, like the uh-huh. monologue joke. And I think Rodney Dangerfield, I can't believe, I can't remember. There was another one. And I said, we're just going to have a subject and we have to write that same subject as jokes for these different people. That's right. What a great idea. And they realized that there was an actual technical construction to how to make something funny. And it was really yeah. eye opening, but, and it's the technical part that to me, I fall in love with it. It's one of the reasons why Stephen Wright appeals to me because of how he hides the punchline, you know, <laughs> that type Completely. of thing. Uh, and a lot of times the audience tells you what's funny about your joke. You know, like I Absolutely. remember I wrote this joke when I was starting out, I was working the door at the Washington DC improv when I was in college. That's sort of how I learned about everything. Right. And, uh, and I wrote this joke and I thought, oh, this is just like any other joke. You know, I go, I have a girlfriend and she's a little bit older than me. And she's starting to think about having kids, which is why we're going to have to break up. And, and the audience laughed more than I expected. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. That tells me that I'm hitting on some kind of internal feeling that someone in that, some people in that audience are, are feeling in their own relationship. Right. And I, that was like a revelation because it's such a simple joke. There's not much to it even. And then I think the tag to it was I just I've decided I've reached a point in my life where I've decided I'm not going to have kids 
until I'm sure nothing else good can happen in my life. <laughs> right. And and it was like the first time where I told a joke that like you're saying, it's like truth concentrate. Yes. That was my truth. Yes. And it spoke to whoever's truth was in the audience in that moment. Yeah, because there are two parts of it. When I started as a stand-up, I was more a technical joke writer, and it was harder for me to be an honest joke teller about what was actually happening to me. Why? Who knows? It was easier for me to observe something and get the truth out of something that had nothing to do with me, you know? Sure. But I remember feeling that transition and how much it's such an interesting, liberating feeling when you start hitting on that type of thing. And it almost feels like they're not jokes because they feel like statements that you just believe in. Right. Yes. It's funny. Cause when you like, I, for me, the gold standard in like storytelling comedy is when Pryor did sunset strip and yeah. he talked about being on, being on fire and like, you know, uh, freebasing and all that stuff. And there's not that many joke jokes in it, really. I mean, he's just talking about, you know, it's, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt when they put the bandages on, but it hurts when the bandages come (laughs) off. It's like not even a joke. That's just true. Yeah. And then he's just living it out and we're, we're experiencing it with him. So a lot of that style of storytelling to me, I, I admire people that have that style because I feel like there's a lot of trust that comes with that. Um, in fact, the, the show before that show that was taped for Richard Pryor, um, I think he did one the night before where he completely bombed. If you can imagine that. I, I've, I've, I've read about this before and it's so Mike, strange to completely. me. Completely. It's almost like, who's this guy? You know, like, <laughs> like, what did they do with Richard Pryor's body? Like, did they burn his body and they got this skinny brother to do act like he's Richard Pryor? Like, what the fuck? Seriously. I mean, can yeah. you imagine the ch- amount of trust it's got to take for him to say, no, 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 nigga, this shit is going to be funny. Do the same shit tomorrow night, but actually have confidence when you do it tomorrow night. He had an extraordinary amount of uh, confidence in you know he, he just believed in, in himself to, to a degree that is astonishing like you were talking with judd on this podcast about how carlin and Pryor both sort of walked away from vegas yeah. where they were making serious money two hundred thousand a week yeah and it's like it's like well how much confidence does that take these guys really like had a sense of uh, here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do something different than other people no, that's crazy. Do you ever have bits or have you had bits where you you really want to tell it, but the audience isn't catching it yet and you've had to really chip away in that until it's broken through? There's so many things like that. Like I had this bit that I've, I've yet to make work in the show because I, I've yet to get it having serious laughs on stage at the Comedy Cellar, which is, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm a loser. I'm someone who loses, but I'm a competitive loser, which makes it worse because I want to win. I'm not attempting to lose. I'm attempting to win. Right. And then I lose. Like I would be so much cooler if I was a loser who's like, that's my thing. Yeah. If you're just fine with it. <laughs> right. Right. If you weren't so fucking competitive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a bit that I've never been able to become like make into a bit. But like when people hear it, they're like, I know what you mean. Right. 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 But where does it fit? Well, what, what's yeah. going on? That's in that, uh, the oppression Olympics type of thing, you know? Yes. Like they should have Olympics for oppression. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, they really should. I mean, as long as you're going to compete in it, you know, would be a good idea. How much do you ever like, did you ever do the thing where you hung with comics and you're telling stories and then those stories became part of your act and, or were you, you know what I mean? You're bantering about something and you go home, fuck, what was I talking about? I was killing yeah, in that. Totally. I was killing I, last I, night with those guys. I, I have one from years ago mm-hmm. where it was pretty seminal for me, actually. Like when I was starting out, I was at the comic strip on the Upper East Side and in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I came up with, um, you know, Sherrod Small and Steve Byrne, mm-hmm. a bunch of guys about my age. And I remember one night I was telling Steve Byrne this story that I, I thought was funny, but it, I couldn't imagine telling it on stage. And it's about how when I was a kid, I, I was, had a crush on this girl and I asked her to go to a carnival and we went on the scrambler and, 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 and I start like acting out like how mm-hmm. I'm on the scrambler <laughs> and I know mm-hmm. I'm going to throw up. And I'm like, but the problem is that I needed to tell the scrambler operator that he needed to stop the ride, mm-hmm. but you can only speak to the scrambler operator like for like a four second span, like every <laughs> whatever. And so I'm like right. thinking, please stop the ride, please stop the ride. And then I'm like, please stop the ride. And then I'm back and uh, I'm thinking, and then eventually I throw up and it's like this story where I'm, I'm telling Steve Byrne this story and he's going, and he's laughing. He's going, you got to tell it on stage. Mm-hmm. It ended up in it, you know, probably 10 years later, I told it in the, my girlfriend's boyfriend special on, uh, on Netflix. And but for years, I didn't tell it because in my mind, it didn't fit with my persona. I was like, my persona would never be such a physical comedian acting wow. out the scrambler. Yeah. You know, and I feel like we get a lot of us as comics, That's we get in our heads yeah. about what are what the, what are the rules of Larry Wilmore? What are the rules right. of Mike Birbiglia? What what defines us? And then, it, and then we start to think, oh, I can't do physical comedy because I'm an intellectual comedian. I'm a heady comedian. <laughs> right, right, right. And then it's like, actually, at a certain point in my life, I just go like, no, it, it's whatever. It, like, you write down what you write down, and however it comes out, it comes out. Yeah. It's funny because I've always put way too many rules on myself in, in stand-up. And then I'll be in a situation where I'm just riffing and telling a story. And I'm like, this is great, Larry. Why don't you do this on stage? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like, take this and put it on stage. It will be, your life will be so much easier. You know? Yeah. Do you, uh, do you look back at some of your early stuff and go, Briggs, what are you thinking, man? Just relax. <laughs> like, like, yes. Oh my God. I mean, beyond, I mean, to the point where I can't. Yeah. I can't watch the old stuff. I mean, I just have to keep moving forward because it's, it's, it's too, it's too painful. Like it's, there's something about, I mean, the principles of like sports and, or playing sports and doing comedy Mm -hmm. or all these things I think are so interrelated because it's like, I've never been good at golf, but like if you play golf, people go, just relax into it. And you're (laughs) like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I have any idea what I'm doing. I'm not going to relax. But then the truth is best golfers in the world figure out how to relax into it. Mm -hmm. If you do stand up, people go relax into it on stage, have fun. It's like, ah, that doesn't, that seems impossible. But the truth is the people who are the best at it are having fun. Yeah, it really is. 
what it is, it's a, it's a hyper Zen state more than relaxation. Relaxation is the best way to say it, but you're not really relaxed because you still have to be a crouched tiger pouncing on the audience and listening, active listening and all that stuff. It really is being able to be a, like an active Zen almost, you know, where you're, right. you're like this, but you're, you're like, in that moment type of thing, you know, when you're doing your, I think when you're doing your best work, I always say like, whenever I did stand up, there was five things going on in my head at once. And you try yes. to explain this to people, what it's like doing stand up and they don't understand. They think you're just telling jokes, but in reality, that's just the one thing going through your head yes. is the act that you're doing. The other thing going through your head is how much time do I have left? You know, and you're monitoring yes. your time. Okay. And you start editing. Maybe I shouldn't do this and maybe I'll do that. And then a third thing going to your head is what's happening in the audience. Like, yep. do I need to address that thing over there? Cause they're fuck. Yep. There's, there's something happening in the room over there. No, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to go on over here. Yes. Well, you know, maybe I'll engage this person cause that looks good. You know, like that's another thing, you know, and the last, yeah, the last yeah. thing is you go, okay, what did I do before? <laughs> did I cover this already? <laughs> oh my God. That's so true. There's so many things that can go through your head and they're happening simultaneously while your act is going on. Actually. I think that the Zen state thing that you're speaking to, I think is, is, is a good way to put it. Cause if you look at like, <laughs> it's funny, like if you look at like Chaplin, for example, like right. Chaplin was like, I want to say he was like performing when he was like a teenager mm -hmm. in like, like traveling around. I think his parents were vaudeville performers. And I think what happened is he did it so much that he just, I think, stopped thinking about it at a certain point. As a result, it's the Zen state that you're talking about. Yeah. I think sports, it really happens a lot when you're in the zone, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, you're just connected in a way that well, you just can't miss, you know, just everything you throw up. Like when you see Stephen Curry, when he gets in the zone, it's yes. nasty, you know, because it's like he could do almost anything and throw it up from anywhere. And, you know, as soon as it leaves his hand, you know, it's going in. You're like, that's fuck. And he can't even explain it. He's like, that's how I, I felt. That's how I felt when I watched the Jordan documentary uh, from two, what, two summers ago. It, it was where you that's just go. Dance. I mean, if another player could take five minutes of his best of and there's, mm -hmm. there's, but there's seven Ugh. hours of it. <laughs> you right, know what I mean? Exactly. It's just hit after hit, after hit, after hit. And he's just clearly, he was in a zone that you might describe as like a Zen place. Yeah. I thought what are your, uh, I mean, all your stuff is so good. I really enjoyed your stories about having a kid. Um, I think so. The, the new next one, one. The is new that one. the special? Yeah. Or the new one. It Thanks. was so good. Um, that also is so honest in a way. And you, you're able to get away with saying things <laughs> that a lot of people can't. Like, I, I, I hate yeah, kids, sure. you know, or, or the, the way that you say it. Bernie Mac was like oh, that too. You know? I, I think you should be able to hit a child oh in the God. stomach or the oh throat, like Bernie would say. <laughs> You should be able to strike a child in the stomach oh or the my throat. God. Like that was his rule. <laughs> you know? Like when you're, uh, when you're doing a show like that, which comes from a very personal space, is that a little harder to do? Are you pushing yourself a little more? Are you thinking of it more in this broader theme of like, you know, I got to talk about having my kid. Let me construct this I think thing. I actually never, never wanted to talk about having a kid. I not only that whole special, the construction of it is, here's the reasons why I never want to have a child. 
And then here's about how right. I had a child and here's how I was right. And here's how I was wrong. And that's why it has kind of this emotional mm-hmm. ending to it. Uh, and that only mm-hmm. came, I was never going to talk about it. I, I, I mean, I will, cause in mm. my mind, I think as comics, we all have a little bit of a bias against comedians who talk about their kids because it's a little mm-hmm. cheap, e- even though like when people do it well, they do it really well. But, but sometimes right. we feel like, all right, this person's like, it's a, it's a little bit of a trick. In that case, I thought I really, for the thir- first 13 months of my daughter's life, I just thought, oh, I'm never going to be on the inside of this. Like I love, yeah, you know what I mean? Like funny. I love my daughter, but like, <laughs> Like I'm not yeah. part of the team of her yeah. and my wife and you know, my wife, my daughter, I like, like my, my joke in the special is like, is like, I'm looking at my wife and daughter and they love each other so much. And I'm there too. <laughs> you know, I'm like the pudge, yeah, pudgy exactly. milkless vice president of the family. Hilarious. And it was like, and, and mm-hmm. it was honestly, there was a period of time where, where my wife, Jenny was basically like, I don't want you talking about us having a child. Mm. I just prefer you not mm. talk about it. And I was, mm-hmm. and I was sort of biased against it too. And then we went to a, a, a film festival together with this movie I did called Don't Think Twice. And when we showed up, they said, we, we have a storytelling night and we'd love you, you to tell a story. Um, and the theme is jealousy. And I go, yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. And then, uh, and then Jenny, who's a poet, she goes, uh, you're jealous of our daughter, Una. And I go, yeah, I mean, I could talk about that a little bit. You know what I mean? And so then Jenny and I sort of like co-sculpted that story together. And that was the beginning of, uh, what became the new one. And a lot of it was like talking through what I could talk about and what I couldn't talk about. I get that question a lot. Cause I I'm confessional about my own life. People go like, how do you deal with this with your family? And my answer is always like case by case basis. You know what I mean? Like I do not wow. know. I still don't know. That's fascinating. Like, do have you ever been vetoed like by your, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> are there, are there some, what are, what are some of the most no famous, examples. what are some of the no most examples. famous examples? That, come on, give us a hint. What's the area? I would say, not that, and we, and by the way, for family listening out there, Mike's technically not talking about it now. I'm asking him right. to tell That's me right. about something. That's so funny. No, I mean, I let, let me describe it as the trickiest area of the last show was this part of the show where I'm so depressed and I'm so down and I have the flu and, you know, I'm on the road and like things just aren't going my way. And I have this thought, which is, uh, I get why dads leave. Mm. And I say, I'm not going to do it, mm. but I had, you know, I get it, yeah. you know, and for some people that's, that's too much. Mm. And I think like I had to really navigate that and I ultimately had to, it's so funny. It's so nuanced, mm-hmm. but this is for people who are comedy nerds who are probably the people listening to this yeah, in the first no, place. By the way, people like, love hearing comedians and people like yourself deconstruct and talk about this stuff. So don't worry about it. Talk about it in as much detail as you like. People love this. Uh, okay. So there was a point at which the version of that was, and I had this thought 
I get why dads leave. And mm. I had a bunch of people be like, you know, you really lost me mm. when you said I get why dads leave. Wow. So then I was like, okay, let me try to reconstruct this with like the slightest tweak. Mm -hmm. And it was, and I had this thought and I couldn't believe my own thought. Oh. I get why dads leave. And so oh, I'm actually, I'm prejudging it. Yes. I'm prejudging it before you can judge it. Yeah. And so then when it gets to you, you're like, oh, okay. It's not that bad. I understand where he's coming from. As opposed to like, what, what is he? <laughs> this guy's a, a jerk, you know? Right. Exactly. Which people still say, but no, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> uh, how does your family feel about, I mean, you talk about your health problems a lot and some of them, yeah. I felt like, is he going to die on stage? Like what's, <laughs> what's going on? Is that how this ends? Is that how this ends? Is it like a Dick Sean type of thing, you know, where it's like, surprise, there's only one performance of the old man in the pool. You guys, <laughs> uh, it's funny. Cause I, I do, I trust me. That's, it's not lost on me yeah. that, that, that is, uh, I think about it all the time. I mean, I had bladder cancer when I was 20 mm -hmm. and, and I, the other night I got off stage and I wrote an email to my urologist and scheduled my cystoscopy. Like, like one of the more satisfying things about the show is that people will DM me on Instagram and they'll go after the show. Uh, my mom made an appointment to get her to the scan for blah, 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 you know, or you know, my dad made an appointment for this, or I made an appointment for this, or I called my parents and told them I love them. You know what I mean? Like oh, that's for awesome. me, that's the most satisfying thing because it feels like, oh, okay, we're not just spinning our wheels doing comedy. Like, actually, people are taking something away from it. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. You know, you talk about something in your last special that you talk about in this one, too. And I wanted to ask you about it personally. This whole sleeping disorder, and, yeah. and it's not a spoiler because you've talked about it before. Could you could you just talk about that again? And how oh, yeah. I want to know about that first experience. You jumped you jumped out of a window in your sleep. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so. I, I had like minor bouts of sleepwalking when I was in high school. Mm, okay. They were, I think I, at the time I thought they were rooted in anxiety mm -hmm. and, and maybe they were and partially fueled by anxiety. Um, and then I had a, a, some in college. And then when I started touring after college, when I started just hitting the road and being an MC and doing colleges and that kind of thing, I started to have it worse, increasingly worse where I would be like, I'd wake up on my nightstand. I'd be standing up on it and then I'd, you know, I had a dream I was in the Olympics and I would fall down and I'd be, you know, and most of it's like at the time, like my girlfriend at the time would tell me about it because I wouldn't even know what was happening. And Amazing. I always thought, you know, the joke in that, that, that's that, um, in that special, I always say I, at that point, you know, when it started to get dangerous, I thought maybe I should see a doctor. And then I thought maybe I'll eat dinner. And that's really what, it comes down to is like, it's, I actually deal with a similar thing in, in the new show where I say, I tend to prioritize things that'll keep me alive in the short term over things that'll keep me alive in the long term. So true. if I'm not alive in the short term, I definitely <laughs> exactly, won't be alive in the long exactly. term. And so I didn't see a sleep doctor 
until literally I was in, I was at La Quinta in, in Walla Walla, Washington, doing a gig at Whitman college. And I, and I had a dream that there was a, a guided missile headed towards my room oh my and the missile coordinates were set on me. And I decided in my dream, the best course of action was to jump through the window to detonate outside the window. And I ended up in the hospital with stitches in my legs and they did a sleep study and I was diagnosed with a rare thing called REM sleep behavior disorder. And, uh, so now, you know, when I go to bed at night, I sleep in like a sleep sack, like almost like a, like a sleeping bag. And, um, for a while out there, I wore like mittens and I take medication and, you know, it's, I'm alive. I don't know. Like, it's one of those things I go, I'm lucky to be alive. I, there's not much you can take away from it other than like, in thematically in that show is all about like dealing with the thing that's right in front of you because i think metaphorically we all have something we're in denial about yeah and it's interesting that in the first show you bring it up as not feeling worthy to be a dad because of this and in this show it has to do with your own mortality and kind of the fragility (laughs) of, of just your life which is interesting i mean what's wild about the show is that People my age mm-hmm. and older are like the obvious sweet spot for the audience. Right. Like they're like they're people starting to think about their own mortality. But what's funny about it is that when younger people come to the show and usually the younger people who come to the show, they're like college kids who, mm-hmm. who their parents are fans. Yeah. And then the parent, you know, the parents are like, you should come to this. And then they're like, the younger people love it, but they, unless they're dragged to it, I don't think they think it's for them. Mm-hmm. Cause they're like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not at risk of dying. It's like, well, guess what? Like <laughs> people, you know, I remember when I was in my twenties, people start to go and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. Yeah. And, uh, your health stuff started at a pretty early age, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had cancer when I was 20. Wait, I so you had disorder. cancer when you were 20. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Like, what does that do to you just personally? Does it feel like, you know what, what the fuck? I may as well do whatever I want to do in life because who knows? Was it that type of thing or did it, was it just more just anxiety type of thing? No, I think it actually, it, I I think I had a drive from having cancer at 20 Mm -hmm. because I I was lucky. They took it out. They did, they did a biopsy. It was malignant, but. Hmm. It didn't spread. And so they just said, you know, just come back every year, every six months for a cystoscopy, which is this very invasive procedure. I've had one. I had oh, one before. Oh, yeah. Wild. I was in high school. They said, uh, we found traces of blood in his urine. We have to put something Ooh. in his dick that would cause more blood in his urine. You know? <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, let's have as much blood in my urine as possible. You know? <laughs> like, are you crazy? Last <laughs> you know? night I was talking about the cystoscopy on stage and I'm yeah. explaining it. So right. they take a camera and they stick it through your penis. Exactly. And, your butt. and this guy in like the third row goes, rah! You know? yeah. And I go, you're, I go, I did it. I yes. go, you just have to listen to me talk about it. Yeah. I'm like, so I'm so sorry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, sorry to hurt your feelings. But yeah. here's how bad it was for me. So they put me under and I was like, I used to record the Barks Brothers on TV and I would memorize the movies, stuff like that. And so I'm reciting animal crackers as I'm going to sleep because I'm so scared of what's going to happen, you know. And uh, they, when I wake up, they go, 
Oh, so good news. We didn't find anything. Everything's great. In fact, with the camera, you know, we recorded it. It looks so good. We're going to use this in studies. I'm like, hold on a second. That's not what I want to hear. That when is this, awful. When something is going in your dick, you know, <laughs> you don't want to hear, by the way, false alarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> false alarm. We didn't have to do this at all. Go yeah, figure. Yeah. You know, you're the Kardashian of cystoscopies. <laughs> exactly. Oops, our bad. <laughs> Next time we're choosing something, let's not have you be the chooser. You know, but it's funny because, like, yeah, I, I, you know, I talk about all these health things on stage. Yes. I, I always tell people when they ask, you know, like you were saying, you, you've taught classes and these kind of things, and mm-hmm. I, I did like a, I taught like a class recently, and I, the way I was describing it to young people, they were mm-hmm. like college age kids, is like when you tell a story you have to think that the audience actually doesn't care. Mm, that's interesting. Like, that they don't, they're not interested. They don't, mm-hmm. you, you have five minutes. Just imagine you have five minutes with a stranger mm-hmm. and, and they're either going to listen to you or they're going to walk away. Literally, they're going to walk away and listen to anybody else's story. Cause how many mm-hmm. stories are there? So if you walk on, if you walk up to somebody and you go, you know, make up an example. It's like, I was at the craziest party once. There was all kinds of liquor and there was all kinds of people there. Everyone's, people started dancing on the roof, you know, whatever. And they think that's a crazy story and that's a fun story to tell, whatever. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. I've heard stories like that. But if you go, when I was 20, I, there was blood in my pee and they put me under anesthesia. And now you're going like, Hmm. All right. Well, where's this going? Mm-hmm. And I always think about story in that way. It's like you want people to just be like to lean in and go, okay, then what happened? Right. Cause I, I feel like a lot of people when they're starting out in storytelling, they're telling the stories that they would tell sort of to their friends, but your friends are like a completely biased audience. Absolutely. Like I never got the whole thing. Like there's a modern movement where they want comedians to bring in the audience, which I never understood. You know, I was like, yes. no, nigga. I'm like, no, nigga, that's your job. My job is to bring the comedy. Your job is to bring the audience, you know. Yeah. But, you know, and people bring their friends and family. I'm like, I make, I, it's not a challenge to make those people laugh. Yes. You know? I want to make strangers laugh. Yeah. You know? That's what the challenge is when you know something's funny. That's why I never, you know, even now, like my parents still haven't seen this show. Like I don't love people I know seeing the shows. Cause I, I do think of it like, like we're, you know, we're strippers, you know, like we're just going, Hey, this is my, this is what I got. You know, well, in some ways, I mean, the way you're exposing yourself and the way yeah. you talk about it, it's always kind of held me back from talking about certain things, but I've really been thinking about it lately. I'm like, you know what? There's some things that I feel like I need to talk about. I'm, and when I'm, what I'm talking about is talking about family members and yeah. parents and that stuff. I've always been reticent to do it because I don't know. And maybe it's my Catholic thing about the guilt, you know, sure. and not wanting to, I shouldn't be exposing their dirty laundry. Or, sure. You know, talking out of turn, put your business in the street, as we say. How do, how do you get over that feeling? You know, cause I know you've experienced some of that where it's like, you know, sorry, 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 parents. I got to talk about this stuff. I have to say, like, I, I still, I do still think about it all the time. Like I think mm-hmm. about when my parents who haven't seen the show, see the show, like, What are they going to think of it? But like, I think that for me, the answer is in the laughter. 
it's like if people are laughing, mm-hmm. they're identifying with something that they had with their dad or their sister or their wife or husband. If they're not laughing, it, it's a little tricky because then you go like, well, you're airing your dirty laundry. It's not connecting with people. And then it mm. starts to feel like, you know, it's almost like, I mean, com- people who aren't comedians wouldn't maybe know this, but like sometimes as comedians, we get booked at like corporate events, you oh. know, and it's, or like, right. <laughs> and it's like, mm. you know, it's like Pepsi's annual <laughs> meeting or whatever the stupid right. thing is. And people, comedians have so many stories about like, and then they fired me because I cursed about this or whatever. And I'm always like, were you also bombing? Because I found with corporates, if you're killing, I don't think they complain that much. Right. But it's when you're bombing and you're cursing, then they start to go. And he broke the rule about <laughs> cursing. And he said the mean thing about my wife and whatever. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's why, you know, the famous insult comics who could say the worst things. But- yes. You know, because it was funny, because Don Rickles was funny, he'd get away with it. We're like, sometimes people are like, they hated me because I said these horrible things about them. Yeah, nigga, you didn't get a laugh. You, you got to make them laugh. It's I the know. most important thing. It's always painful to me when I see comics blame an audience. Because I, I, I think it's our temptation. It it's, is, I, yeah. it's one of the things when you're saying you have like 10 things going on in your head when you're doing right. stand up. One of the things is... What the fuck's wrong with this audience? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Every comic, I don't care who you are, you have you either do it constantly or you do it occasionally, but you will always do it. What is happening with these yeah, people? Yeah, yeah. Why, or this is the other way you say it. Why did I agree to do this thing? <laughs> Why did I agree to do this? Or it's like, why did that middle act do that fucking bit yes. about the da da da? And now they don't yeah. want to hear what I'm talking about right now. Yeah. You know? Oh, but yeah, and and I think the temptation is to say the audience doesn't get it. It's over their heads, but actually like it's your job. (laughs) Like if the audience isn't laughing, it's actually on you. Buck stops with you. When you're um, talking to students or people who are interested in storytelling type of performing comedy, um, do you give them any tips about relatability? Like you were kind of hinting about before, because that's a tough thing. What you say, like, how do you search for relatable things? Um, is it just being as specific about your thing as possible? Is that, do you think that's the way to I do think, it? I think that's what it is. I think there's a famous quote that I'm going to not cite correctly, but it's in the specific is the universal, you know? And it's like, but it's like mining those specifics in your life and putting them in front of an audience and finding out, does that click with, with you. So it's like with my sleepwalking, for example, mm-hmm. like, I would walk on stage and I, w- I remember the first time there was a show. First time I told that story on stage was at just for laughs festival, in Montreal. And it was a show called confessing it. And it's like, mm. confess a thing about you yeah. that you don't talk about. And I remember I told that story and I had not told it before. And it was immediately getting laughs. And it's so specific. I mean, who has a rare sleep disorder right. where they jump through a window and it's getting laughs which means it's getting a laugh based on a relatability that I don't even understand. And mm-hmm. I actually may never understand. Yeah. And at the same, at the same time, it's kind of defining you to them as well. Right. Yeah. It's like, 
I think that in the case of the sleepwalking, like, cause I've analyzed it cause I've been telling it for 14 years, but it's like, I think in that case, it's like, okay, this person has this thing wrong with them or that they're ashamed of. Mm-hmm. And I have a thing that's wrong with me. I have a thing I'm ashamed of. And if they can see themselves in that, in you, then, then you're, you have a communion with the crowd. Yeah, I, I'm such an admirer of it, you know, because I'm, I'm still too chicken to do certain things that, I, you know, but I, it's something that I'm pushing myself. Um, having said that, meaning, yes, I probably will be doing some more stand up at some point, you know. Let me throw one thing in the mix, though, uh, which is you can always, you know, this is like the classic, like, <laughs> my friend has erectile dysfunction. Um, exactly. The, the, exactly. Uh, you can right. always, but you can always change names yeah. for real. Like you can be like, you can literally take your dad, for example, and mm-hmm. you could, um, you know, you could make him uncle Roger, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and you don't have an uncle Roger. And so nobody can track what the hell. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess Larry's just making up stories in the people in your life or like, I guess he's just making up stories, but actually you're talking about your dad. You're talking about whoever you're talking about. Well, that's interesting. How much, how much embellishing goes into what you do? And by embellishing, maybe changing facts that aren't that important, or is there any just wholesale making up of things as well? So I have my own code and I think everybody has their own code. Cause I've like worked with other mm-hmm. storytellers over the years, you know, and my code is if it's emotionally true to me, like mm-hmm. if I've felt it, uh-huh. then I'll say it. Right. But I am not, I am not loyal to, you know, this happened in 1997. Mm-hmm. If it happened, if, if maybe it's better for the story, if it happened in 2002, mm-hmm. because the audience is unaffected by whether or not those, those things happen within a six month span or, or 12 month span or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times a story, what keeps the audience interested is causality. And mm. so, so I always try to think in relation to, again, this isn't my original principle, but like stories being, so then this happened. So then this happened instead of, and then this happened and then this happened. Mm. So in my story, for example, it's like, like, you know, I had this sleepwalking disorder and I, you know, I had these few incidents and I didn't want to deal with it. So then I went out on the road and did more dates mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and so then my sleepwalking got worse. And so then, you know, I jumped through windows. So then I finally went to see a doctor. And if you, if the causality, like, who knows? Like, I'm trying to think of what the actual timeline of like when I saw a doctor right. in relation to jumping through windows in real life, but like, if, for example, I didn't go to a doctor for two years, I'm mm-hmm. not, I'm comfortable saying like a month later, I went to a doctor. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, right. cause I don't think that that mm-hmm. uh, affects the audience's, uh, you know, it, for me, it's all about like, what's the best version of this story? It is interesting because it is, it is something I've thought about too and wondered about. Um, it's funny because when I was talking to your brother, I can't remember what it was. He's like, mm, I'm not really like what he was saying. You know, he was, he felt Wait, about like, what thing? About what thing? I can't remember, but there was, there was something where he was like, mm, it's not quite like that. Uh, oh, that's really funny. It was a comment that you had made about him or whatever. But, uh, and oh, so that, about you. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Yeah. About so, the will. It was about writing the yeah, will. Yeah. That's exactly. Because he told me to write a will. But you know what's yes. funny about that? Yeah. He, 
because <laughs> he's That's a big exactly, fan. You knew exactly where I was going. He's with a, that, yeah. No, he's a big fan of yours, and so yeah. he'll be listening to this for sure. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he's a credited additional writer on the show. And like, yes, that part is true. He did. He did yeah. tell me to yeah. write a will because he's a very practical person. Sure, sure. Um, but I think what he's maybe saying is like. It wasn't at like maybe the kitchen table yeah. in, in that moment <laughs> in when that I moment. said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. See, that isn't, see, I like that. Now, that is a good uh, thing to know for people who are interested in storytelling is you shape the story, you know, and do what you have to do to shape that story that's, that still, it, may, it makes it real, but there's a hyper realness to it that makes it a story, you know? Yeah. So it's not just the, you're not just telling something that actually happened. You're creating a story of the thing that happened, right? Yeah. And one way to think about it is like, if you're editing a documentary, you have thousands of hours of raw footage. Yeah. And all those things happened. But man, if you rolled tape and press play on thousands of hours, that's (laughs) the most boring ass movie you'll ever see. And so like, for example, like maybe I didn't see my sleep doctor for six months, but I said it was two months, but it was because... I didn't have health insurance at the time and I was, you know, I was going to get it when I did this certain job, but it's like, this is boring. Like the audience is like, what your health insurance. I don't know what this has to do with what you're talking about. Yeah. Any plans? I know you've done some film and that kind of stuff. Any plans to make other materials out of this type of stuff for yourself? Longer form film book stuff, more of that stuff coming for. Yeah. I've been writing a movie for about three years. Uh, so I directed a movie sleepwalk with me, which we were talking about. And then my second movie is called don't think twice at Keegan, Michael key and Gillian Jacobs. Mm-hmm. And it's about this group, a group of best friends who, who all kind of audition for SNL. And then one of them gets it Keegan. And then the other ones don't. And it's about what happens in friendships when some people make it, some people don't. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I'm, I'm writing my third one right now. And it's a little more involved. It's a little more budget. It's a little, you know, it's, but it's of the same kind of verite mm-hmm. style, which is, which is fun for me. It's like my favorite kind of movie where you, where like it, yeah, it, it. kind of like the movie once or something where it's like, mm-hmm. it's like a fine line between like, where is it? Is it documentary at certain points? Like Absolutely. which part's real. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm working on that. And, and then, um, and then hopefully knock on wood, uh, this show, The Old Man in the Pool, which I'm going to 12 cities in the fall with. And then after that, I'm hoping, Great. knock on wood, that it goes to Broadway. I mean, wh- I mean, you never know. One never knows, but that's the hope. Okay, so how much longer? Let's tell people it's at the Mark Taper Forum right now in Los Angeles. And it'll be there until? Uh, August 28th. August 28th. And then you're going to go on the road, check mics. Uh, yeah, Cincinnati. And, yeah, uh, Detroit. A bunch of places. Great places. And let's hope, you know, I'm sure it'll end up on Broadway and that type of thing. What's, what's your... Uh, What's the favorite thing about this type of performing, doing a show in a theater that's presented as theater? You know, what, what's your favorite thing about this, Mike? You know, what's funny. It's like, I actually love all types of mm-hmm. stand up in the sense that like, I love going to the comedy cellar. Mm-hmm. I even like, I love you in college gigs where nobody knows who I am. In the right, crowd. Yeah. Like, I, I, it's sure. fun for, it's all fun for its own thing. What I think yeah. I like most about theater is, it's like driving a car around like a NASCAR track. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like everything's perfect. You know, mm-hmm. the lighting is perfect. The sound is perfect. There's a design, like everything about it. And the audience is listening. 
Yeah. That was part of the reason I got, I veered towards theater was that in clubs, sometimes they're just not listening. They're drunk. I know. They're talking to each other. They're sharing broccoli poppers. And you're just like, I don't know. This is hard. I don't know if I can do this every night. Yeah. And so much of your style is very intimate. You know, I love like when you go into the whispering, you know, that sort of thing, you know, and the audience, what I love about seeing you in theater, because I'm, you know, I started in theater. Actually, my first professional gig was at the Taper, ironically. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Yeah, back in the day. But uh, there's a different level of appreciation. Comedy clubs make you bring your shit. That's what comedy yes, clubs make you. Yes. You know, so it puts the that fire to the thing. So you got to bring it. And that's what's great about comedy clubs. Sorry, if you're not funny, get the fuck out of here. But theater, they really are interested in listening. And that's yeah. what's great about it. You can take your time. Um, I find you can make discoveries in silences, too. Have you yes. discovered some of that when you're doing theater of like, there's moments that happen that you didn't expect when nothing seems to be happening. Yeah, I think, and I'm finding that even, mm-hmm. you know, this is a 38 performance run and I'm finding that I'm like halfway through the run now. And it's like, I'm finding those more every yeah. night. Mm-hmm. Like, and those are, the, those are, it's, it's almost a similar kind of thing to like trying out a joke, trying out a silence is its own Trying thing. out a silence. Yeah. Cause you're writing in that silence. There's something, yeah. there's a connection happening there. Like you said, that's maybe a little unexpected, or the audience starts anticipating something you didn't know they were going to anticipate. You go, oh, they're actually expecting something from out of this thing. Yeah. No, and I and I, Gerard Carmichael's new special oh, on HBO. So yeah, he he does this stuff with silence that is, I find it to be uh, completely transcendent. He, it's really he's, good. He's just sitting with the audience, yeah. and they're kind of without giving anything away. That they're, they're kind of taking in mm-hmm. what he said. A, a few moments before and they're yeah. all kind of taking it in at the same time. And I love that, man. I mean, it's great. His thing was so good. It was different from theater and different from standup. It was, I think it was the inverse of standup. He had a confidentiality meeting <laughs> you <laughs> yes. know, where you like, we're all signing an NDA that I'm not going to perform for you tonight. That's what the NDA says. And that yeah. you're not going to expect a performance that we're going to have an intimate conversation, but it's not going to be a performance. You're allowed to speak, but it, but it's going to be respectful. And that's exactly what happened. You yeah. know, and the way he played off of their interaction was so organic. Like, it, yeah. like, like they're like, he called these people together in his living room, and said, I got to tell you guys something, but first let me tell you a little background first. That's what that special felt like to me. And it, it circles back to the, the word you were using earlier, which is Zen. Yeah. He has a level of Zen in that Completely. special that almost like, unlike anything I've ever seen. It's really good. You go, how you go like, how are you this young? <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think what the audience ex- loves about that, and this is the other part of the Zen, is he's completely in control. Yeah. Because, because you can't be in an unguarded state like that and not be in control because then they'll walk all over you. That's the thing about stand up and that, you know. And by the way, speaking of this, finding the specific or finding the universal in the specific, mm-hmm. his story so specific. Yeah. He's talking about these different family members and there's really, really like nothing like my life, like things where I'm going like, Oh wow. I I don't have an uncle like that. My dad's not like that. But then I'm going, Oh, I totally, I I see myself in his story. And you know, it's funny. The, and the opposite of that, you're talking about relatability. I'll just say this. I know you have, you got to get ready for a show. Oh yeah. Um, But uh, Richard Pryor, when he was making his transition, you know, his, caterpillar to butterfly right 
transition. So there's a, did you ever see that tape he did called Live and Smoking? No, I never saw that. Oh my God, Mike. It's amazing because the audience is not ready for him yet and he's not ready for them yet, you know? And you talk about relatability and specific. He does this very specific thing, but it is not relatable. (laughs) He goes, don't you, you know, I sucked a dick once. So don't you hate it when you're sucking a dick? And, you know, and the audience is like, no, Richard, we don't hate that because I'm not relating to you. Wow. He says, no, I can't, I can't go with you. When you say, don't you hate it when you're sucking a dick, I reject your premise. Yes, yes. And you could see the audience go, what are you talking about? Like, why are you saying these things? It's wow. fascinating. It's like silent in there, you know? Yeah. And he's telling a truth that I don't think he ever went back to that level of truth, to be honest with you, because... You know, he was, you know, the things that he did growing up were, yeah. you know, that level. And he never talked about that type of thing again, you know, and it's, I think it's because he did, it just wasn't relatable. I also think like it, the idea of saying like, uh, don't you hate it when <laughs> yeah. I think those, I think those premises are increasingly going away in yes. comedy because yes. There's a, you know, it's just a much wider audience swath yes. now than, than it used to be. And so people are going, no, no. I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never thought about this, Richard, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't been an issue, you know. Uh, well, Mike, thanks so much for being here. So great talking to you. I mean, I you could too. talk to you about this stuff forever. And, and uh, for Mike fans out there, I'm going to hop on his pod pretty soon. And we'll, yes, we'll have some fun over there. But guys, if please, and even if you're not a Briggs fan, please, Old Man and the Pool is so good. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's so good. Please go see it. Cause it's, and you could bring family, you know, it's one of those types yeah, of yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. There's no, cur- there's actually no cursing in it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the thing you do at the end with the audience, the joke thing is so funny. Oh, you thanks, know? man. <laughs> it's just, I won't spoil it for everybody, but there's so many great moments here. Congratulations Thank on you. the show. Mike Perbiglia, everybody. Old man in the pool. Coming to a theater near you one of these days.